Good morning, church. Uh, it's nice to be back from vacation. I had a, I went to the, you know, I had a great little staycation actually, and I went, got to go to the great city of Aurora. Great place, a lot of fun, um, and uh, actually had a good time. Uh, you know, with, with family, we got to travel around a little bit and said goodbye to an old friend as we called Automotive Hospice and got rid of our van. And uh, got another van in the process, and I'm, I'm reminded as I was in the CarMax, I got it, went to CarMax, and I'm staring there at the, the salesman, and I'm asking to see what I'm going to get for my car for a trade-in value. You guys have been there, right? And you think you have a wish of what you want to get. You might even look it up on Kelly Blue Book and think, hey, I could get this. Now, this car, we've had for a long time. We've had for 10 years. We actually bought it at CarMax 10 years ago, which I thought would help, and it didn't. And I remember sitting down, and, and he, he goes, you, they, they do this guy where he, he goes out, and he checks it out, and he drives it around, and he comes back in, and, and then they, they play with the computer, and it's like one of those celebrity shows where they, you know, it's like move the bus almost, like, what's it going to be? And they keep flipping screens, and it's like, you're going to get this amount. And it came up with $400. And I was like, oh. And he's like, that's not what you're expecting? And I went, how much are you expecting? $1,000. And he goes, oh. So he starts reviewing everything that was wrong with the car right then and there. So as he's sitting there reviewing everything, I'm laughing to myself because I'm thinking of all the things he's not mentioning. Um, and Like we had an antenna, and the antenna rubber piece went around, around it, and it, the antenna went like this. So people thought we were jousting when we drove. And, I mean, the, the carpet was stained, and the, everything was rusted out. And at the end of it, I'm like, maybe I should pay you to take it. You, you know, it was that bad. And I laughed because he's like, well, your check engine light's on. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's been on for about six months. Um, and, you know, it's just, that's what it has. How many of you have driven your car for a long time with a check engine light on? How many of you are doing that right now? <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting when we have this check engine light, usually... I mean, usually the check engine light means something is wrong, right? And sometimes it means that it's wrong, like it's going to be really wrong soon, or it's immediately wrong. And, and mine, it, was, it, it wasn't immediately wrong, but it was, it was coming. And you don't know when that's going to be, though. You're, you're, you're playing what I call automotive roulette, where you don't know every time you turn on the car whether or not it's going to die. And we've been there. I remember I was driving with my uncle one time when I was in high school, and I had my check engine light come on. And uh, I said, I think it needs to get to the, the uh, mechanic. And I was, I was young, 17, and, and um, he says, well, I'll go with you. Because so, he knew more about cars than I did. So we're driving along, and I see the, the, the heat gauge go up. I mean, the check engine light's on, but you see the heat gauge, that's where you get real nervous. And it creeps up, and I'm like, it's getting higher, it's getting higher. And he's like, it'll be fine. It gets up really high, and he goes, just pull over for a minute let it cool down. So we pull over, and it cools down, and we pull right back on the road, and, and it goes up again. And I said, it's going up, it's going up. And he's like, we'll be okay. And I'm like, it's going up. He's like, okay, pull over. So, I mean, it was like pulling over. We'd go, you know, 500 feet, and we'd pull over again. And finally, he's getting annoyed because we're getting, we're getting close. We're about a half mile from the garage, and we're driving along, and we're going, we're cruising along, and the, the heat gauge goes up again. And he says to me, he goes, uh, just keep going. I'm like, it's going up. It's going up. He goes, we're going to be fine. Just keep going. Well, the next thing you know, the cabin becomes filled with black smoke and flames come outside of the out of my car. And I'm like, it's not okay. It's not okay. <laughs> and, and we pull over and we had to just wait for the whole thing, the fire to go out. Um, 
and, and, and the car, you know, became useless. Became useless then, because we didn't, you know, we were trying to heed the light, but we didn't do it quick enough. And, and the problem is, is we never know when that's going to be, right? And if that check engine light is on, that means something is out of rhythm. It's out of place. It's not working right. There's a problem with it. It's causing the rest of the car to, to have problems. And if that one part goes out, the whole car goes out, right? You know, that same is true with our lives. You know, many of us are spiritually redlining. The check engine or check life light is on, on your proverbial life's dashboard. And are you listening to it? It could be in your work. It could be in your marriage. It could be just in your entertainment, in your choices that you've made. It could be in your finances. And the check life light is on. And God is saying, pay attention. You're getting ready to flame out. Life is going to crash. What are you going to do? You need to pull over and you got to take, I mean, you need help. And, and we're going to God's word to get that help because really we've been, we've been talking these past few weeks that saying balance in life is completely impossible. R- rhythm is the example that the scripture lays out for us because we can't have complete balance because that means that life is completely static and stationary and it's not. It's filled with ebbs and flows and moving parts and we're, we're moving around at all times. But there are times where one part of our life gets out of whack and then if we don't make take measures to rectify it then we're gonna we're gonna flame out so god is in his word is trying to get our attention because we've been talking about finding rhythm in life but you know if rhythm in life is completely irrelevant if you don't have rhythm with god if you don't have rhythm with god first all the rest of this is management it's, it's when our relationship with God is right that we place ourselves under the authority of his word and allow his word to be the diagnostic for our souls that we can take measure in the proper recourse of action and change our ways so that we might experience the joy of life with God and hum along in peace and in rhythm with him. Today we're going to be talking about finding rhythm in the fight for our spiritual life and in our fight with sin. How do we find our rhythm to fight sin and to stand for righteousness? I mean, we've talked about finding rhythm in our work, uh, in our generosity, in in our marriages, and in our parenting. But today we're going to find out how do we find rhythm with God in our fight with sin and our pursuit of holiness, and find this communion with God. And when we do, we will find what the Bible calls shalom. It's the Hebrew word for peace. And it's not just peace with God and peace with one another, but it's peace within ourselves and in the world in which we find ourselves. And it's not just a, a peace as in the removement or removal of hostility, but it means wholeness of life, where we're humming along with God. So today we're going to look at this passage in Proverbs chapter 7. And, and I want us to get a bit of a lay of the land. Proverbs, uh, the book of Proverbs is divided up into different sections. And at times, the author of Proverbs, which most of the Proverbs are authored by the Spirit speaking through Solomon. And as he is writing these, there are sometimes where there are large swaths of a passage, like chapter 7 and chapter 6, where it embraces uh, the text speaks to one specific subject. 
There are others, when you get into 13, chapters 14, 15, and 16, where there it's every other verse is something different and speaking to something different. Now, this passage is very unique in that it is one specific chapter that is devoted to a certain subject. And it's of a parent speaking to their son, warning them about the immorality that is knocking at the door of almost every young person in the world. We don't know if, whether it's a man or a husband, I mean a father or a mother, speaking to their child exactly. I like to look at it as God as a parent speaking to us, providing a warning through a parental relationship on how we are to fight sin itself and what happens if we don't fight sin the way that we are supposed to. And then the, and looking at the consequences thereof. So this passage is outlining how someone is to fight sin and how they didn't fight sin and what happens because of it. So I want us to jump right into our text and see what we have here. Because we know that sin can grow up really quick and choke us out, right? Anyone here ever heard of the kudzu vine? Ever heard of the kudzu The kudzu is a vine that originated in Japan and in southeast China, uh, but specifically in Japan, and it made its way to the United States in the 1800s in the Philadelphia Exposition Fair. Now, what we don't, most people don't realize about this vine, it it grows extremely quickly. Um, It can grow in very warm conditions a foot a day. That's extraordinary. And that's in extremely warm conditions. And other than that, I mean, it grows 60 feet a year and can and reach about 150,000 acres annually. That's massive. Now, some people call this vine the, the vine that's swallowing the south. Because literally, it'll grow up and swallow trees, huge historic trees, and it will even swallow homes and cars. I mean, it's unbelievable how fast this thing can grow. And you know... If you don't keep it in check. See, in Japan, the reason it didn't swallow up the island is people kept it in check. Because it's such a small island. See, the kudzu vine is an illustration of sin that can creep into our lives and swallow us whole if left unchecked. And this passage that we're looking at today is our means of taking the shears of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, and hacking through the vines of sin that can easily grow up around us and, and tries to choke our spiritual lives. we got to keep it trimmed back. So when we get into this passage today, we're going to see how we can keep the, our hearts, our spiritual lives trimmed for the glory of God. Now, fighting this kudzu vine of sin means being diligent, and the same is true with us. See, we redline in our fight with sin when we, first of all, it's this, disregard God's word. When we disregard God's word. Look at verse 1 with me. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Now, like I said before, it comes from the perspective of a parent. And this parent is saying we are to keep. It's repeated in verses 1 and verse 2. And then the parallel lines store up and guard, stress the idea of remembering what he is being taught. Also, we see there's this binding aspect. And this binding aspect is a hearkening back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Shema of Israel. This was the rallying cry, the theme of Israel. And they were to take and bind the law of God upon their, their hands, on their heads, on the doorposts of their lives. And he's saying that you're to bind these commands. It's a hearkening back to the teaching of God that this parent has received and is communicating to his or her children. And it's saying that you need to do this. Don't disregard what I'm about to say to you. 
Because you're going to get into sin if you don't. And we see that we're going to redline if we disregard God's word and what he has with us, has for us. Now, how do we disregard God's word? This is how we disregard God's word. First of all, when we fail to retain it. Now, let me ask you this. Do you memorize scripture? If not, why not? Why not? You want to fight sin and be victorious in your fight with sin? What does the scripture say? Psalm 119, I want to show you this. Psalm 119, 9 and verse 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, it's this understanding of, of writing it on our heart. Even the, the, the proverb says, write it on the tablet of your heart. Retain it. Memorize it. This is the importance and why we memorize Scripture in our, in our generation's ministry. And, and so that when we come to the time of temptation, that Scripture comes right to mind. We don't have to think around about it. We need to be so immersed in the Word of God that it becomes part of who we are. So we need to retain it. And when we fail to retain it, we start spiritually redlining. We're disregarding God's word. We must also respect it. Respect it. Look at verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Now, uh, we have a little boy, and our little boy is a little boy. I mean, he's rough. And people that know him, they're like, oh yeah, he's rough. And he likes to push his sisters in every which way that he can. And we have to tell him to be gentle, because it's really strange when you see a three-and-a-half-year-old beating up an 11-year-old. You know? Not all the time, Eliana. It's okay. But he's tough. He's tough. And we have to tell him to be gentle. He needs to respect your sister, and especially how to treat women. He needs to learn how to respect them and, and interact with girls. Boys, you can beat up all you want. But girls... It's a different story, right? He's learned to respect it. And we need to learn to respect the word of God. Now, do you respect the word? Now, I have this Bible. This is my preaching Bible, okay? I, I used to be my devotional Bible, and now it's a preaching Bible, and it pretty much stays in the sanctuary. But I have a Bible that I use for my devotions that if I'm apart from my Bible for any period of time, I know it. I mean, it, it doesn't take a few hours, because I'm so intimately tied to this, my Bible that I'm in it a lot that if it's not there, I, am, I have anxiety until I find it. What amazes me is how many of you here leave your Bible in this sanctuary after church is over. Because that tells me that the Bible means nothing to you. If you're going throughout an entire week without the Bible, you don't even know it's gone, something's wrong. We're to be in the Word of God, respecting the Word of God, communing with God, interacting with God. Some of us just take our Bibles and flip it or throw it on the floor. It's not how we're to treat it. We're to treasure it. I'm going to highlight my brother Reuben. He was, we were having a conversation some time ago, and he was, set, he was telling me a story about sitting in church one Sunday, and there was a teenager that sat by him and just threw his Bible on the floor, and Reuben just went, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm, pick it up. Because we respect the Word of God. I'm amazed at how, you know, Muslims respect the Quran more than we respect the Bible at times. You know, in, in Muslim households, they take the Quran and they put it in the highest shelf in the house, that it's not higher than anything else. Many of us just throw it around like it's nothing. And yet, ours is truth. We need to respect the Word of God. 
to read the Word of God and to let the Word of God read you. And, and, and that means this. Don't take the Russian roulette, Bible, don't play Bible roulette. Too many of us play Bible roulette. Don't play Bible roulette. You know what I mean by that? Bible roulette is this. I'm going to read the Bible today. Oh, they're a holy race. Mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Oh, that really means so much to me, God. Systematically walk and read through the word of God daily so you can get the theme of what God is trying to communicate. Start in the, in the New Testament and then work your way through piece by piece. Make sure that you're respecting the word of God enough to spend time with the word of God, interacting with the word and letting the word interact with you. So we need to respect it. We also need to review it. Review it. We need to make sure that we are not just reviewing the Word of God, but what we're being taught, what we're communicating. Last week, I had the opportunity to go to a different church. You don't get that opportunity very often. I wanted to see what other people are doing, worship with other believers. And it was fun to get in the car afterwards and talk about the sermon. I don't get to do that. <laughs> you guys get to do that. I don't get to do that. Um, but it was nice to talk about it and review and say, what is God teaching us? What is God saying? What is God communicating to us? We need to review the Word of God because when we review it, it stays with us. You know, that's what this young man in Proverbs was to do. He was to keep it as the apple of his eye. And that's referring to the pupil of the eye. And it's the same word, by the way, that's used in uh, verse chapter 7, verse 9. It says the dark of night and pitch darkness in chapter 20, verse 20. One Jewish tradition says it is the place where the whole person is reflected in the eye of another. Israel is the apple of God's eye, according to Psalm 32.10, as the psalmist is in Psalm 17.9. And it's the idea is you're keeping it, you're treasuring it, you're respecting it. And lastly, we are to respond to it. Respond to it. I'm reminded of when I was in construction. Uh, when I was in college, I had a construction job, and I would ride with these guys to the job, and sometimes we would ride two hours. The job would be far away. We worked on grain elevators, on the roofs of grain elevators. And I remember uh, riding with the guys, and they were a bad bunch. I mean, they had all the most perverse radio shows, and, and you know, every other word was some profanity or something derogatory. And, and one guy, he, he probably the worst of the bunch, he and I would always be in the back of the truck. And I remember just sitting there, and I, I would try to witness to them about the love of Christ because he was such a bad guy. I mean, everything about his life was far away from God. And I was very surprised when I started interacting with him, and he started quoting Scripture back to me. And that confused me because I went, how does this guy who's so rough know Scripture better than most of the people that I know? And he goes, well, I was raised in church. I just left it. I said, well, I feel for you because you know what to do and you're not doing it. Judgment will be greater upon you. See, it's one thing to know the Bible, but it's another thing to do what it says. So we must make sure that we are not just studying it, not just learning it, but doing what it says. You can recite, and there are many of us in this room that can recite many different verses and know the truth of what we're supposed to do, but we don't do what we're supposed to do. So that's why I love Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10. Great verse. Ezra is the priest, and it says here, for, the, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And to do it. Not just to study it, but to do it. And to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We must make sure that we are properly 
responding to it. Now, we're to keep the, the words. That's what the, the author of Proverbs is saying. And it's not just disregarding God's laws that causes us to redline, but it also occurs when we distance ourselves from godly wisdom. That's why they're saying here in the passage, treasure up my commands with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of my eye. But it also goes back in verse 1. My son, keep my words. My words. The wisdom that I'm communicating to you. You know, what do we do when we start to sin? We remove ourselves from fellowship and with people that could speak about us and we avoid them. And we're not to do that. We're to put ourselves in proximity to other believers. And yet it could be painful, especially if we are in sin. But we know that we are continually submitting ourselves to to God the Holy Spirit through His people and His Word that the Spirit might perform spiritual surgery and keep the cancer of sin and the kudzu vine of sin away from us. And it might be hard, but you know what? I like what the psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping, but for His anger is but for a moment and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. What that means is there is that I might weep, I might be painful to submit myself to God's word, and I might experience God's chastisement and his discipline, but there's joy that comes after that. There's joy because restored fellowship has been made with God. We shouldn't distance ourselves from God and his word. That's what this young man had done. Now, we distance ourselves when we fail to devise a plan. Devise a plan. That means for devising a plan for reading the Word of God. Like I said, we don't want to do Bible roulette. We need to have a systematic reading plan. And you can do this. We've talked about this. How, how many, I don't want you to actually raise your hand, but have you gone through the Bible before completely? I would really challenge you to do that if it takes a year or two years. I go through the Bible twice a year. And it's just because it's my passion. That's my heartbeat. And I would challenge you to do it. it and once you do it, do it, do it once in a year. Once in a four-year period of time. I don't care. Go through the Word of God. Devise a plan of how you're going to, to read the Word. Don't distance yourself from it because our hearts get cold when we're not in fellowship and communing with God and His people. And in fellowship. So we must make sure that we are devising a plan. And we also need to make sure that we are defending against temptation. So that's what this young man failed to do. We do look at verse 7. And I have seen among the simple, this is more than simple, not just naive, but just deliberately disregarding and not thinking through the consequences of his action. And the author says, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. That could be any young person. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. I mean, we, we can be naive when we're young. Not all are. Some are, are listening to the word of God and instruction of their parents, and they're following what God says. But this young man is not. He's a young man that lacks sense. He's passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of darkness. See, he is intentionally putting himself into temptation, passing along. It's like going back and forth along this woman's street, and he's doing it at night. It's not like he doesn't know what he's doing. He is deliberately putting himself into temptation. You know, many of us, though, we, we, we do the same thing, do we not? It's like Mae West once said. She goes, I generally avoid temptation unless I can't resist it. 
She intentionally puts herself in it. Or Jane Seabrook, in her book, she said, Lead me not into temptation, I can find the way myself. We all find temptation on our own. Or Oscar Wilde, he said this, I can resist anything except temptation. So you have to realize and not forget to discern the power of temptation and sin's appeal. Discern the power of temptation and its appeal. Resisting temptation is hard. You know, Oscar Wilde once said this. He said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Is that true? No. You don't know how strong temptation really is if you continually yield to it. C.S. Lewis said this. I love this. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not understand or know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Let that sink in. Bad people really don't know. They've never tried to fight it. It's only those who try to fight it and find victory know how bad it really is. Jesus is the one who resisted it and understands the full power of it because he never gave in to it. He was able to resist it completely by never giving in to it. Fight your sin. God doesn't tempt you. Let me remind you of that. He doesn't tempt anybody. As James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, each one of us has our own sinful desire. Our sinful nature comes out in different ways in each one of us that seems normal to us, and it expresses itself in a variety of different ways. We've talked about this several times. For some, it's gluttony. For others, it's... it's uh, uh, gluttony or anorexia or bulimia or it could be stealing it could be lying it could be adultery it could be uh, homosexuality it could be bestiality it could be anything if it's outside of the parameters of god's word your sinful nature will express itself and it's when we give in to our own sinful desires i mean temptation comes into our own sinful desires but We have to believe and proclaim the Word of God. And the Word of God says this, No temptation has seized you, except, or has overtaken you, that is not common to man. We all experience temptation in different ways. You know, the Scripture says Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. But He did not sin according to Hebrews chapter 4. Now, does that mean that Jesus was tempted to look at pornography on the Internet? No. But the point of the the matter is, is, I mean, was Jesus tempted with gluttony or anorexia or any of those other sins? No, it's saying that Jesus is tempted in the same way we are tempted with our sin. Not in the exact, with that sin. He still had, he was the fully God-man. God-man, 100% of each one, not 50-50. And he is both God and both man. And yet he wasn't completely brought down by his sinful nature, but he fought against it because he had to identify with us. But God will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you haven't memorized this verse, I would really encourage you to memorize it. 
You want to retain a verse and try to deal with temptation and remind you of that? Because see, Satan has this way of hedging you in to think, I can't do anything else but this. I want it so bad. My natural desires lead this way. It feels so natural to me and I want it. And people say I can have it. I see other people doing it and I want it too. God is saying, no, that is not what I have for you. No temptation has overtaken you except what is, or what is not common to man. I memorized it in a different version. But God is faithful. He will, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So get in the word. Don't withdraw from fellowship. Do what God says. Make sure that you aren't, you aren't daring God by being foolish. Daring God by being foolish. Many of us dare God. We put ourselves willingly into situations of temptation, and then when we give into it, we somehow blame God as if God was the one behind it when we are really suffering the consequences of our actions. It's like the the preacher uh, who was driving. He was late for an appointment, and he pulled into the parking lot. He went around the parking lot ten times looking for an empty space. The only spot he could find was was one where there was a sign that said, No parking. He put a note on his window said this, late for my appointment. Then he wrote underneath, tried 10 times, forgive our trespasses. He came back to his car an hour later. There was a note next to his note from the policeman. It read this, been riding in this neighborhood for 10 years. Will lose my job if I don't ticket you. Lead us not into temptation. The point is, is don't try to do something foolish and not think you're going to suffer the consequences of it. I mean, many of us play with sin. We think that sin's not that big of a deal because we've seen people around us doing the same things and not suffering the consequences for their action immediately. So we rationalize that it's okay for ourselves to do it. But see, if you're a believer, God's really ratcheted it down on you and expects more. And he's going to bring his conviction and his discipline to you in a more severe manner. That person still will be judged and suffer the consequences of their sin. The scripture is very clear. A person will reap what they sow. If one sows to their sinful nature, from that sinful nature, they will reap destruction, death. But the one who sows to the spiritual nature will reap eternal life. So we must learn to say no to sin and not play with it and minimize sin. I mean, let me put it a different way. How many of of us, if if you're a parent, when your child was in the cradle, just all beautiful and pure, you would take a little baby black widow spider and put it in there? You would never do that, would you? Or if you put strychnine or arsenic in your coffee, would you drink it? No. Even if it was a little bit, and I'd say, oh, it's just a little. Would you drink it? Why? Because it can kill you. Or it can kill your child. And yet, that's what we do with sin. We say, just a little bit. It's not that big a deal. And we can play with it. And God says in his word, don't do that. Don't play with sin. Now, we must also make sure that we don't demand instant gratification. That's another way that we redline. When we want things and we want it right now. Remember the original Willy Wonka with Gene Wilder? Remember that? Veruca Salt. What was her song? I want it now. That's our world today. And what happened to her? It ended up being her destruction. She didn't want to wait even to get home. I want it now. And that's how we are. We are all are a little bit like Veruca Salt. We all want it right now. We don't like to wait for anything. 
We want cable on demand. We want it instantaneously. We want it faster. We get the newest cell phone because it's faster. If our internet connection is interrupted, ugh, we're going crazy. I, I just finished George Washington's biography by Ron Chernow, and what blows my mind is just the letters that he wrote and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And what blows my mind is that those guys wrote letters, and they, it may not arrive for several months. I mean, if it lasts more than an email, like three minutes, we're like, ah, where's it at? Refresh, refresh, refresh. We are an instant gratification world, and we can't demand it. And that's what this young man does. He doesn't realize that there was greater pleasure waiting for him, and he thought, I'm going to miss out if I don't do it. And see, that's how God, Satan presents sin to us, is that if we don't get it right now, then we're not going to have the best. We don't get to partake of it. It might be taken away. We can't demand instant gratification. And we have to remember that we are in a battle. And it's not with, as Ephesians 6.12 says, with flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, Satan is at war with your soul, and he knows your weaknesses better than anybody else does. And he crafts temptation to bring you down. One of the greatest books that I would really encourage you to read if you've never read it is the book Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis wrote this book, and it's about uh, a senior demon educating a younger demon on how to tempt humans. Lewis said this was his most difficult and most depressing book because he had to get into the mind of the devil to write. And he talks about temptation, and he says this. It's pretty fascinating what he says right here. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, this is the senior demon talking to the younger demon, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But see, temptation doesn't come that way. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, which is God. He then says, it doesn't matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to keep the man away from the light. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. See, the road to hell is the, the, the one that the culture accepts. The road to righteousness is the one that the world rejects. That's why so many different churches have capitulated just in recent years in denominations and embracing all of these things of the world and turn away from the Word of God. And it's a gradual descent. And then they look around and go, why are we not growing any longer? It's because the blessing of God is not on you, because you have left the Word of God behind, because you wanted the world and Christ, and you can't have both. It's one or the other. So we must make sure that we are keeping track of sin and not demanding instant gratification or giving in to these so-called small sins, but we are fighting against them. We must be on guard against the enemy, the devil, and make sure that we're not deceived by the darkness. That's point number five, deceived by darkness. See, this young man was deceived, and this woman presents herself to this young man in a very fascinating way. For example, if we were really to look at the passage and see all that's involved, you can see in verse 19 that she is married. That she's married. She says, For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. 
He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. Basically, we're also not going to get caught. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with smooth talk, she compels him. I mean, she goes back and she says in verse 14, actually verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. She makes herself religious. Like, I'm all right. This is okay what we're doing. So now I have come to you to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. And she offers up these, these pleasures for him. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen, and perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. And she also basically says there's no consequences. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband isn't at home. He's not going to come back. So she's promising him all these things. And that's what Satan does. He promises a lot, but he can't deliver. And he also doesn't let us see the consequences that aren't coming. Satan tries to intimidate us to keep us from doing what he wants us to do. He wants us to keep us in sin and in fear. And he'll do anything to do that. I don't know if you saw the news this past week, what happened with Chinese authorities at a zoo in China. But there was this African lion it was in a display, and people were looking at the lion and saying, oh, that's a different kind of lion, but wow, it's an African lion. And then the lion started doing something very suddenly that surprised everyone. It started barking. See, the Chinese officials had taken a mastiff dog and doctored him up and put a disguise on him to make him look like a lion. And when the lion started barking, people went, I don't think that's a lion. And the, the authorities are in big trouble because they tried to pass off this dog as a lion. And trying to, to keep, see, Satan tries to do that. He tries to make himself, and make himself so terrifying to us that, that we're going to be held in fear. And we realize that when you have Christ in you, he can't hurt us. He tries to intimidate us, but he can't intimidate us. And he can try. But it's when we stay in the Word of God, and we won't be fooled. He wants us to fool us and to think something is not sinful, and you would dress it up as something amazing. But the reality is, it's not that great. Don't be deceived by darkness. Not only that, but you have to realize that He wants you to think your sin is not all that bad while He's leading you to your doom. And that's the biggest thing. We redline when we don't deal with sin and realize that sin leads us to our doom. Look at verse 22. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, killing it instantly. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. Look at verse 26. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, the place of the dead, going down to the very... chambers of death. See, sin destroys our lives. And when we fail to deal with sin in our life, we're going to find ourselves redlining. So my challenge to you is this. Is your check life, check life light on? Are you disregarding God's word? Are you distancing yourself from godly wisdom and, and proper fellowship? Are you out of rhythm with God? Maybe it's in your entertainment choices. I'm amazed at this in my own life and in others where we think that it's not that bad and yet we're allowing them to say the Lord's name in vain for our entertainment purposes. That's horrible. 
when we allow God's name to be trampled for, sin, for, for our own entertainment, it's awful. We rationalize it away. If someone came up and just blasphemed God to your face, would you be okay with that? Would you have a struggle? And yet when we willingly put ourselves into entertainment situations where that happens, that's why I like reading previous generations of godly believers that would be appalled to see. The question is, is would you be okay if Jesus was next to you? watching that show, doing that activity. See, it's amazing how much we rationalize sin until the reality of godliness or God shows up. And then we realize and are convicted instantaneously on what is sin, what is not. We must keep a short account of sin and stop redlining. The only way we can do that is listen to that check life light, go back to the Word of God, and not just read the Word of God, but lay ourselves at the table or the altar, and let God perform his spiritual surgery through his word, by his spirit, on us. Sometimes when we get out of rhythm, and you see this with hearth patients, what do they have to do? They have to take the paddles and do what? Shock it back into place. Don't go so far away from God that his disciplined paddles come to shock you back into place with him. He might have, he'll, he'll do it. It'll be painful. I would willingly rather submit myself to God to allow that to happen rather than wait for his disciplined hand that if you're a believer in Christ, that discipline will come. Don't play with sin. Find your rhythm with God. Surrender yourself to him and, ex and be ready for the blessing and peace that comes with following him.